0: We're not called computer engineers anymore. We're software engineers. 15 years ago, they were calling us webmasters. And then we have ops people and then database people and full stack people. And now we have front-end engineers and back-end engineers. Isn't that a more natural evolution?
1: Hello, and welcome back to PodRocket. My name is Emily, producer for Pod Rocket. and today we're recording our yearly wrap-up episode, Rocket Surgery, to discuss not only the good, the bad, and the ugly of the past year, but also talk about what we think 2023 holds for the world of software development. With me to discuss these topics are our PodRocket hosts, Kaylin and Noel. Kaylin, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit what you do.
0: Yeah, sure. I'm Kalen, uh, senior engineer at LogRocket. Been here for quite a while. Help out with the content team, and I'm mainly do architecture
2: stuff for the front end at LogRocket.
1: Awesome. Uh, and Noel, you want to refresh our listeners.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I am our head of growth engineering. so I'm kind of the kind of the liaison between our engineering and marketing teams. Before this, I was doing just like full stack feature work for the platform. But yeah, we do a lot of a lot of stuff with the blog and website and all that all that fun stuff. So. That's where i spend my time
1: yeah we love both of you uh helping the content team out and helps us make really good content for everyone well so excited to get into it it's been a very busy year we have a lot to talk about so let's just start kind of go over what we thought 2022 was going to be um where i have some of our predictions down um, so let's just kind of review them first. Let's start off. Web development ecosystem is decoupling from JavaScript. Do we see that happen in 2022?
0: I think we definitely did, especially in the tooling space. I know for a good solid, geez, like eight years since Webpack and Babel became like kind of like the de facto solution. There's been frustration, and now with Rust getting super big, and also Go to a lesser extent, now there's finally tools that are ready enough. That they can actually fully replace babel and webpack. In particular, I think turbo repo and uh, esbuild. Well, esbuild in the case is like a foundational component. A lot of people might be using it without even know- knowing it. Like I think Byte uses it.
2: Yeah, I think I think it has. I, I totally agree. I think it's proved proved true in the tooling space, in particular. I feel like it's been the year of vite this year, which we'll get into more of later. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure if it has been as as much as rep- represented as much kind of in what devs are actually writing is code day to day but i feel like the people the tools that people are using even if they're not doing much work in them those have been shifting to faster technologies kind of by necessity
0: yeah it's always hard to when you talk about like what's vogue right now i i guess i'm to specify i mean like what of the new things coming out what what percent are like Non JavaScript, and, and I would say, yes, definitely. Of course, it will take years, probably, for all these tools to be even like half half of the community using them every day.
1: We're gonna get into like TypeScript and Node and uh, WebAssembly later, but uh, any like beginning thoughts of any of those before we get into the nitty gritty of how you thought they were going to change this year? Did they meet your expectations? Did they exceed it? Um, was there anything different?
0: Um, I will say that uh, WebAssembly perhaps didn't make as much waves as I hope. Of course, it's been like five years of me have been disappointed at <laughs> the state of WebAssembly. Things are still moving slowly. I mean, uh, the vast community is growing very big and can always compile your things over to WebAssembly through that. and. Because of that, Rust has actually taken off as a legitimate option for front end frameworks and stuff. That didn't exist and it became more mature, mature over the last year, but I it's still it's still a very niche thing. It's definitely an area to look look into in the next year though, I think.
2: Yeah, I feel like the Rust the Rust ecosystem has kind of been where it has been happening. And I feel like other than that, the tooling just isn't isn't quite there. So it's it's stayed kind of niche still. Not that it is hard it like particularly hard to get into. I think it's just not. It's not something devs tend to be reaching for when they're going to kick off new projects or starting to build something as much as uh, I kind of keep expecting. Um, But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens.
1: Uh, It's it's crazy how things change within the year. Um, We also talked about uh, React having serious competition coming in from 2021 to 2022, which... I think, was totally spot on. We're going to get into all the different frameworks and everything. There's been a lot of talk about React kind of not fading because it's still very popular, but it has a lot of competition. So how did you see that manifest this year?
0: React is kind of weird in that, well, frameworks, I guess, are kind of weird in that like if you spend all your time in one framework, then you don't really pay attention to the other ones unless you have a reason to. So from my perspective, it seems like React is still super popular view, I guess. Excuse me, I would definitely say is number two. But like others that perhaps were called like you know, in previous years, legitimate competitors, I think, probably have started to fade a little bit, like Svelp, I guess. Maybe that just might be my conception of the community, not backed by any hard data. There's also I've also noticed over the last year more like view frameworks building on top of web components. And like we'll talk about this later, but I think it's probably a safe bet to say that over time. We will eventually move in that direction because developers like less complexity and what could be less complex than using what's already in the browser. But that's a hard a hard thing to predict.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything's changing all the time, right? And as we've already discussed, like we've been wrong and right about uh, certain predictions we had from last year. If, if we have no more other things to go over about last year, let's dive into this year and what we're expecting for 2023. And since we're talking about React, let's start off with React. React 18 was finally released, I believe this spring. What did you like about it? What did you wish there was more of? Uh, and the biggest question of all, where do we see React going in the future?
0: React was a big. React 18 was a big upgrade. Uh, React 17, if you don't remember, was like the, the easy upgrade that didn't really change much, but React 18 is when they started to actually change things. It's mostly a lot of backend changes that pave, away, pay, pave the way for other things that they want to do in the future, print and server side components. It's kind of a sea change. And I guess to my previous point, it does further depart React from just being a view framework. Um, and I think I've seen some contention in with that respect. Some people thinking that React is getting too, doing too many things. Like I saw t- this year, <laughs> and especially since LogRocket pays attention to this a lot, that they are, like, for instance, mocking fetch. It's just like, mocking fetch in a view framework? I would not expect React to have to do that. And, like, LogRocket always, we have to pay attention when libraries are mocking things that so we are also mocking, because that sometimes can cause issues. So that's how I found out about that, and I'm like, what, why are they doing this? It's a little compounding. Um, and another point of contention that I've, I've seen is Next, Next.js. Especially with server side components, they're working very, very closely, and it seems like increasingly those two communities are merging. And I think that might be a point of contention. Some people perhaps are not too comfortable with how close they are. But if that's the direction the community is going, then I guess, um, I guess that's a good thing. At LogRocket, we haven't quite gotten as far as upgrading to React eighteen yet. It's uh, we have a huge code base, and it's a lot of things to change. But I have used it for other apps, and I, I do like the new features. And I'm excited for server components, but have you used any of the new features at all?
2: Um, I haven't. I haven't, like, spun up a React project in a while. I'm a, I'm a view guy still, so I haven't, like, outside of, you know, outside of work stuff, I'm not, I'm not hitting it, I'm not hitting it much. But, yeah, I, I, I think Kalen's, Kalen's point on the, like, relationship with Next versus, all, like, how that, how that is going to or how that is playing out and how that is influencing the framework is the is the interesting bit like to pay attention to here how the community reacts to it, it like on one hand it makes sense as as react itself becomes you know more more all encompassing and trying to do more than just be a front end library right and become more of like a, a whole framework it makes sense that they're kind of having to work more closely with next which is the prominent framework um to kind of get a lot of the benefits they're trying to derive i think from the direction that they're going but yeah it kind of does it does i think lead to this fear uh that people have of like is is React eventually going to be more of a like a product that we are buying that happens to have this kind of open source core but you're really you're really buying into next if you're using react we don't know yet, but I think that that's where, where a lot of that kind of tension is coming from.
1: Yeah, I think I think the biggest moment this year that I remember was just watching um, Next.js conf and Andrew Clark, who's on the React team, saying that Next thirteen is essentially the real release of React eighteen. And we've already kind of talked about this, but at risk of repeating. What do you see Next kind of doing within this next year that may either take away from React or, again, just having this weird melding that everyone's kind of like, I don't know.
0: I hope they don't forget that, you know, not everyone can switch to Next. LogRocket, for instance, we are a gigantic React app and we're a very special, special snowflake. so we need those decoupled tools. Close relationships with Next is is good and all, as long as you know anyone can pick up the documentation and make their own, you know, Next.js competitor to do, for whatever reasons. And we'll get to this later, but there are promising alternatives that are not Next.js. I think close collaboration is okay, but not too much, I guess. <laughs> to,
2: to that, to that statement specifically about like the the Next release actually being the real react really like next 13 being react 18 like i i feel like that was a little bit more like pitchforky than everybody needed to get probably like the heat on that he probably was alluding to like this is where react 18 is going to get the most traction the most quickly is people on like next 13 spinning up new apps that'll like this is where it'll hit production the fastest right like people getting out new react 18 apps which is like fair enough that's what's that's your as your developer that is like you're proving around so that's what you're that's what you're Yeah, I think I think it is, it is giving devs a bit of pause. Like this may this may be a a point that is that leads devs to switching to something else. Like you know the the solids, the views. I don't know. Just kind of people that that know they're not going to want to buy into the next ecosystem for whatever reason. I think that if they if they're of that mindset, they might not go with React as quickly as they would have in the past.
0: Well, Vue definitely seems to be going in the same direction. Towards large tools that do everything you need. Uh, I just find it funny, and then I've brought this up in previous rocket surgery episodes, where like the community goes in waves of like monolithic frameworks that do everything that you possibly need to do, but are very inflexible. And then, and then everyone's like, oh, we should have very flexible and atomic things that only do one thing. And then, then you get you know a setup that takes an entire month to install, and then you have to install literally three thousand npm packages. Stuff like that, in like five years, React will be you know one giant framework, React Next or whatever, and and then and then someone will come along making something small and atomic again, and then we'll just be back where we were five years ago, five years previous.
1: (laughs) I, I think that goes into like my next question: like, do you see us in like the era of monolithic tools and frameworks and everything, or do you think that we might? I don't know. Kind of realize in 2023, maybe we should take a couple steps back.
0: Yeah, because like the previous generation of tooling was just needlessly complex. I'm looking at you, Webpack. Uh, also, some of it was the browser changes. Like Webpack and Babel came out at a time when things you needed to bundle everything. So that the tooling was more, by necessity more complex because, you know, ECMAScript modules were not supported in the browser. And, you know, Babel, to use any modern features, you needed to use Babel. But we're not there anymore. So the only reason to use tooling is to get like complicated, complicated things like server-side re- server-side rendering, which is like something I would never want to implement myself. Like, let's be honest here. And uh, if you're not doing server-side rendering, then you might need it for other things. But they're not the same things.
1: We kind of touched on Vue a little bit. Um, so I think that's the best time to start talking about it. Because I know, you, Noel, you sp- specifically love Vue. We have you on all our Vue podcasts too. The- Vue 3's default version was finally released earlier this year. What were the pros? What were the cons? I think the composition API was also released this year. What are your thoughts on um, how Vue did this year?
2: Yeah, Vue... Vue.js core is, is Vue 3 now. So it's good. Um, I think, I don't know. The composition API, I think for all intents and purposes is pretty synonymous with view 3. Um, you know, so like that's been good. People have been able to use it. It's nice. It's, you know, if you're not familiar with the Vue ecosystem, it's, it's kind of the same abstractions that hooks gives you with some nuance. Like, you know, people that are really in the weeds will say, no, it's different because of XYZ, but that's how it feels day to day, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think, for the most part, the community's been into it. That's how new projects are spinning up. I think a lot of the the difficulty was in the transition because a lot of the kind of conventions that Vue, like previous Vue, I guess Vue two had, were the there was there was discussion around like what was going to be changed, how much backwards compatibility there was going to truly be. So it was kind of a lot of heat at the time. Maybe this was probably technically like the tail end of the last year when a lot of this discussion was happening, um, but as the as the cutover did happen in like February, I think, this year. Um it kinda kinda came to fruition. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I haven't I haven't heard too much like post it becoming the standard, like too much griping from anybody. I haven't really been looking for it. I guess maybe another another tricky thing is some of the tooling took a little bit longer. A lot of the big like component libraries and stuff um were a little bit slower to migrate than the timelines. And I think that's what gave a lot of Vue its success initially, was there was really strong component libraries in Vue that you could just go pull off the shelf and start writing in and that helped to gain a lot of that popularity. Some of those took longer to migrate than anticipated, so I think that that slowed adoption. Um, But we're getting there now.
0: It sounds like uh, the Vue community is in a similar situation when React Hooks was announced that it caused a massive massive amount of rewriting and dead libraries and crumbles and people using things incorrectly. Uh what do you say that Vue has like learned from React's mistakes? Like h- how does it compare it to hooks in like day-to-day usage, do you think?
2: I I I think so. I think I think yeah, Vue Vue does have the advantage of usually being a little bit behind React kind of in that in that migration for better or worse. Like we'll talk about this more when we get into like state libraries, like global state management and stuff. So I think React can, or Vue can kind of see what's working and what isn't working and you know, make minor course corrections there it's hard to get into specifics without like getting super in the weeds on like you know object observation and stuff um but yeah i think so i think so like it, it feels it feels pretty clean to pick up and get going i think there's probably another it's like like you said the same problem react had where it's like now we're in this state where like you go look up view tutorials or stack overflow questions and like you end up with a kind of this big combination of like view 2 versus view 3 ways of doing things so it might be that might be kind of confusing for new devs and I think react has that same problem but I don't know how you totally avoid that if you are trying to kind of switch paradigms like was done with the composition api and and the hooks api here so I think the short answer is yes but you know with some nuance
0: it does seem like they put more thought into it I think than react i guess they have a benefit of being slightly higher level
2: yeah and again later they're kind of they can kind of observe the react community see what's going on that that's probably a good segue into like we could we could talk about like state management a little bit there too like vuex and pina uh, which i haven't used which is kind of their you know redux equivalents i don't know what's been going on in the react space too much there because again i haven't been spinning up a uh spinning up react apps much recently but I I do. It's interesting to me because I feel like there's a group that's still like spending a lot of time and energy on like you know kind of global stores state management. But then also with like the composition API and with hooks, I feel like the need is is greatly lessened. Do you think that that transition is happening, Kalen? Like, are we are we moving away from needing these tools at all?
0: Yeah, I, I don't even know what to talk about in that space anymore. <laughs> to be honest, the React community went through the same thing. We moved from the mantra of put everything in Redux to just do what works, kind of. Like I know a lot of people now, for instance, use data fetching libraries, particular ones with GraphQL, uh, like Apollo, for instance. And they prefer to actually put all their state there, even even things that aren't GraphQL or things that aren't aren't even touching the network. And some people that do both, or they have things in you know context and, and components, essentially. Of course, LogRocket, of course, was designed to record all of your Redux store state. So that has made that that transition has made that particular feature of log rocket less useful, unfortunately. And (laughs) now that the state is atom atomized across the entire app, it's harder to track. There are trade offs, but I do think it was a little weird. The whole mantra of you know everything must be global state. I I never quite see the saw the point.
2: Yeah, it seemed almost counter to like what we were trying to do with like separation of concerns with components and stuff. Right? Like why why make this giant polluted object that you kind of always got to always have to need or always, always, always care about, you know, observing and like all these places. And you end up with like all this, these kind of weird race esque conditions for things. Cause everything's up in this global state. So it was hard. And I, yeah, I think these kind of like similar with hooks, but like in view you have, we have like the provide inject API more or less, or it's like very easy to pass state down to, you know, I like can arbitrary, uh like lineage of components it can be like you know from this parent 27 children or regardless of how far down they can just like wire in say like i care about this global value or the value from any of my ancestors and pick it pick it out and it's kind of like yeah that, that does feel like it solves most of the need that i ever had for like global state just like put it at the root if it really needs to be global if not put it at the, like the the you know furthest down node you can and then it's like kind of controlled as much as possible just curious does that use proxies I'm not sure I don't know how it actually like works under the hood I've only used it a couple times
0: so. that's been a trend over the last couple of years, mostly board developers finding a use case for proxies um, which explains the you know five new state management libraries that come out every week <laughs> yeah yeah that seems like magic where you can just like you know edit an object and then another component will just automatically re-render the changes and everything Proxies are great and it's a good example of the community finally using modern, modern standards because we don't have to worry about browser compatibility anymore since IE died.
1: Are there any of those libraries that come out, you know, like every other week, uh, that you thought was really game changing comparatively to like Redux?
0: No, <laughs> which is why it's notable. Cause like I, I, literally read one a week and then it's in one year at the other. Yeah. Oh, there, there's like the atomic state management libraries. I think one by Facebook. I forgot the name of it. I've been meaning to try that one. That one looks good. So, if you're interested in like new trends for state management, I think I'd look up atomic state. State with ad, uh, state management with atoms. Um, recoil. Yes. Recoil.
1: Uh, you want to talk about JavaScript runtimes because this has been this has been contentious as well this year.
0: Big <laughs> one, big one. So you might have heard, heard of Deno, and you might have heard of Bun. So Node has Done a pretty good job over the last couple of years of like getting onto standards. Like you can now use ECMAScript modules. Here at Rocket, we're preparing to switch over to that, which has been something we've been look, looking forward to for a very long time. Get rid of our awful awful build system for server code. But recently there's been more competitors. Deno came out first, found found some use for like um cloud functions, I think, for running stuff like that. But like one of the things they tried very hard to do was like focus on security and uh, ergonomics and stuff, developer friendliness. But it seems like performance was an issue. I think, if I remember correctly, one of the things that, the problem there is that, what they're using TypeScript, which is written in nodes. You're kind of dependent on the node runtime, in a way. Uh, and there are some people trying to rewrite TypeScript in Rust, for instance, and stuff. I don't think that's anywhere near ready. So, Bun comes out, And it's like incredibly fast. The internet loses their mind. And, you know, just like Deno, it's like a drop in replacement almost. Um, Well, that's another change I should say that Deno did. I think this year they also really support for NPM, which was notable because, like, they tried very hard to say, like, NPM is bad, actually. We should all use URLs. That did not take off, I don't think. I, I, I I was always confused by that. Curiously though, I've never se- actually seen anyone or heard of anyone actually using either of these. Yep.
2: Bingo. That's the thing that I like am, am? it's weird to me about this as well. It feels like there's like all this fervor when they come out, but then it just like doesn't come to fruition in the way I expect. Maybe it's just because most devs aren't like using as much. It
0: was supposed to be the next big thing and then it never became anything, seemingly.
2: Yeah, and maybe, maybe it kind of harkens back to what we were saying before of like the end of JS tooling like you know that being the tooling uh, language and like that is kind of these runtimes may kind of end up being the same thing where it's just like the people that are actually care about what what um runtime is being used is probably smaller than like you know m- one would expect most of the time uh, like, like, they're, like, most devs aren't going to go into their tool chain and try to s- switch out which runtime is being used. It's like, if the tooling starts changing it by default, then maybe that's when this starts mattering more day-to-day.
0: All these people making new projects don't spend enough time considering the migration path. And I think that's one of the reasons why things don't take off. I mean, it's great and all, but people don't often start new projects. Like You say it's a drop-in replacement, but I don't believe you, <laughs> essentially.
1: And we'll kind of talk about this later, but a few of our listeners actually sent in questions about um, legacy projects and um, having to work with these very, someone said ancient uh, frameworks and tooling and everything. Do you think that, if, to your point, that it's migration is very hard? It's not always a drop and replace. Do you think there will ever be a need for like actual need for a drop and replace runtime do you think it's ever possible? Am I just totally speaking out of ignorance
0: <laughs> it It depends like like I know that there are some webpack alternatives that could be a drop and replacement because that's a component that you can well you can replace because you're not it's not running in your code, it's just transforming it, and if it does the transforms correctly, any other transform could also work. but we're talking about the runtime. There must be a million edge cases that, and bugs. There are other trends in the community that might make this easier, like micro like front ends. Like maybe, you, maybe you use, like I said earlier, maybe you use Bun or something for your, for rendering your server-side components, but not for your API or stuff. Or maybe that could be your migration path. You don't have to migrate your entire ecosystem over to Bun or Deno, and with monorepos and stuff, that's easier to do. So that's probably the path forward for those tools in the short run.
2: Yeah, I feel like yeah, the, like the the server side rendering is a good example too, because you can do things like have both running, like run an instance of both, make sure they're the same for a lot and such. Like you can you can kind of do that that pattern. But yeah, just like I feel like it shouldn't be that hard. It was a true drop in replacement for people to be experimenting with this, and I'm sure they're out there. People are doing them and making it work. Like, look, it works with my side project XYZ. I just don't. Yeah. I just haven't seen as many, like I'd expect it to be popping up in the, you know, blogosphere, hacker news posts and stuff more still. It just, there's just not, there's not much community engagement. Yeah.
1: Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about TypeScript because it's obviously grown in popularity. There was a survey that I'll actually link in the comments that 84% 84% of the survey respondents said they used TypeScript this past year. A lot of people are saying that this is kind of heralding, heralding in a new era for web development and that there's no reason to use solely just JavaScript anymore. Um, how do you guys feel about TypeScript? How do you think that's going to change in the years to come? I don't think JavaScript's ever really going to go away, but um, it definitely is changing the landscape from my point of view.
0: Yeah, going back to JavaScript just feels like losing your sense of smell or something. I don't know how to describe it. Something's wrong. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree. I think even even if like you're you're just just trying to set up something quick as like a proof of concept or experiment, it's still so easy to do it in TypeScript, and you can just always like kind of escape the rails that TypeScript is giving you to be like you know any here. Like I don't care about the semantics at this given point. Whatever. Like it's pretty. It's pretty uh I don't know, unobtrusive. You can get it out of the way even in a TypeScript project when you want it to. Like there's not a lot. There's not a lot of reason.
0: Yeah. I mean, even if you're like if, if you don't even have a build system, like there's still ways of doing it. Like you can just run the commands. You don't need to install, you know, Webpack and Babel and blah blah blah. Everything. Um, people underestimate just how seamless it is. Like or or they think, oh, I'm just, you know, writing a small script. Well, small scripts have a tendency to, to turn into giant scripts and then suddenly they're, you know, key parts of your Company's infrastructure five years later. So do everyone a favor and use TypeScript. Um, this year, also, uh, I always like reading the blog, uh, the the TypeScript updates. Like um, they continuously come out with like the most minute, seemingly changes that makes it feel like it's, they're th- really thinking of everything and have every edge case and like. Being as strict as possible, like this year they came out with the satisfies operator. I think that's probably the biggest feature. And that NVS code, which is always tightly integrated, I think. Um, when you talk talk about TypeScript,
2: it's so fast in VS Code. It's wild. <laughs> like it. It just. I think that. Yeah. I think that adds, adds a lot to its ease of adoption. um And yeah, like a lot of the yeah, the refactoring is easy. Like the higher order functions to like where you can like, go into a type and extract, like, I want the type that is the return value of this function, or I want the type that is the first argument of this function, you can, like, go, like, I've been messing with those a lot more, they've been making some of my code a bit more concise, because, like, have even fewer type definitions that way, and it's all, like, kind of just bubbles out naturally, and it's just, like, I'm doing these things, and I'm, like, man, this is sure easier than a lot of, like, strongly typed languages I've used in the past. I don't need to like declare all these classes that don't really need to exist for any reason other than passing data around. I feel like TypeScript's abstractions, there are like very, very nice. Um, I've had to like
0: use C-sharp inside projects for game development. And like, I find myself missing TypeScript so much, like almost every day. I'm like, why can't I just do this? Why can't
2: it just work? Yeah, no, like I'm, uh, yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah.
1: While we're on languages, let's talk about Rust. Um, We got a bunch of listener comments and questions about how much they love Rust and everyone's using it. And last year we talked about whether or not Rust would become a more dominant player in the non-JavaScript front-end space. Did you see that happen?
0: More dominant, yes. You, for instance, one of those web-based component frameworks that I've been looking at, Supports all the things that I would consider like the, the bare necessities, and one coming out this year like server-side rendering. I have seen those u- the usages of the those go up, and like I said previously, Rust is being used along to go in tooling. So even if you don't use Rust, never learned it, don't care to learn it, it's still changing things. So I would say yes, it has not like taken over the community, but it's like consistently ranking high on uh, developer surveys of most uh, most loved language and the languages that everyone wants to learn, so best bet you can possibly make, I think.
2: Yeah. Why do you think that is, Keelan? Why do you think? Why do you think? Why do you think Rust has kind of gotten into the zeitgeist so much this year? I don't
0: know. I'm
2: that's a good question.
0: Everyone who learns Rust seems to love it. Uh, I guess I think probably because of the developer experience. If I had to say, like removing an entire class of common errors and helping holding your hand when you. When it does report an error and stuff like that, I've briefly tried to use it for game development stuff. Definitely not ready for that. It does seem ready to use for web stuff, though.
1: How do you see that manifesting in web?
0: That everyone wants to ditch Node and rewrite their projects in Rust. That I think it's a good sign. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I noticed uh, specifically on our LogRocket blog, our Rust posts always do pretty well, um, and everyone's always surprised and like it's it's becoming more normalized it seemed uh you talked about you did you look into how seed uh fared we talked about that a little bit last year um do you see either of them growing more or uh more uh their frameworks correct
0: uh yeah there's like a lot of them actually there's like a popular web web, web page are we web yet made by the rest community which is a good like general table of contents almost of the different like Rust versions of things that you need for web development. Yeah, I think it's a good option. I mean, with WebAssembly, that now you can even find some in C Sharp too, if you didn't know, like front end view frameworks. But Rust is a good option, I think.
1: So moving on, uh, we talked, we touched on Webpack a little bit, and it, it was Vercel that introduced Turbo Pack this year, and everyone seemed really excited about it. And how do you how do you see that shaping how developers might continue to stray away from Webpack? Because I think you guys mentioned like it's not as popular as you thought it would be.
0: I think that's probably just inertia. Like the reasons why you use tooling, like I said earlier, is very different from five years ago. Like Turbopack focuses on almost their entire feature set did not exist in Webpack v1 uh, almost, um, but TurboPack is definitely one that I was looking into for actually switching LogRocket to using it, and also Turbo Repo, which is I don't know. Uh, l- l- like I said, the general trend, everything's converging. The Monorepo tooling and your bundling tooling—they're always tightly integrated, so it makes sense for those two to be even more tightly integrated.
2: Yeah, I, don't, I think we don't we don't know yet. I think we're still pretty early, right? Like this is all a pretty pretty recent, like a few months ago kind of thing. Yeah. So I think we'll see like I think I think the interesting kind of uh juxtaposition here is like V and Turbo Pack, assuming that we're s everything's gonna move away and we're not gonna like Webpack Web Webpack web, web incremental updates are gonna be inadequate for like, you know, devs, like for the use cases people need it for. I think it's gonna be interesting to see where we end up. Because TurboPack, by virtue of kind of where it's slated in, so you know, tightly coupled to too versatile to next, like maybe it ends up becoming the norm a little bit more, but like on the other end of that, like, you know, I feel like a lot of the open source tools and stuff are leaning more on VEAT because it's, it's, you know, it is, it is what it is. Um, So I think that that's what I'm keeping an eye on right now.
0: It doesn't actually seem too tightly coupled from what I can tell.
2: I know. I don't, I don't know if it is. I think it's just kind of, that's the feeling. Perception. Yeah. Yeah. People feel people feel like it is that way. Um,
0: But But. I think in general, though, there's if, if you can tell someone that you can turn your one minute build time to, you know, 10 microseconds, that's very, very competitive, particularly when we're talking about legacy systems. If you want to tell your PM, hey, we can ship code like so much faster if we didn't have to wait half an hour to ship to staging, you might actually get some buy in. So I think compared to other tools, the bundling and like monorepo tools, both can actually change pretty fast. I think actually Lerna is dying. It was replaced with NX or it was like taken over by the NX team. Yeah. NX is another m- monorepo tool tooling in the same category, I guess, as Lerna and uh, Tur- Turbo Pack or Turbo Repo, rather. Um, personally, if I were to start a Greenfield project, I would probably pick Turbo Pack at least by the speed comparisons, which I think are the most important.
1: Before we get into some of our listener questions and predictions at the for the end of the year going into 2023, um, I do want to touch on styling and browsers a little bit. One of the biggest things I remember happening this year was uh, CSS introduced the has pseudo class, and it's officially uh, supported by Chrome. Uh, why was this such a big deal this year?
0: Uh, it's, it's one of those CSS features that people have been asking for forever. You can look into our excellent blog posts about it. But the big big picture is that, I guess, from what I'm wondering, what will happen in the next year is how this plays in into the argument, the eternal argument about CSS and JS. Like, if we can now style using variable and CSS in an advanced way that like I can't can't even think of really anything now that isn't supported in CSS that you needed to rely upon JavaScript to like you know st- style things differently based on their children and also the other selectors that have been added recently that frankly a lot of the community probably haven't hasn't even heard about because people have been using CSS and, and JS um, I would like to see us move off of it I think in general. If we can use what's supported in the browser as much as possible, that is a good thing.
2: Yeah, move off of move off of CSS in JS.
0: Yeah, like it's slow, and if it's not slow, it's complicated, or both.
2: <laughs> oh, for sure. And you have to run JavaScript, right, <laughs> versus just sending a file. Yeah.
0: Size and performance. Like you, you work more on like actual websites than I do. I guess it's more important, for, like Lighthouse scores and stuff, on normal websites.
2: N- I mean, nothing, nothing we. Nothing we do is that, is that complicated. Um, like we don't have a ton of custom styles on most of our stuff as it stands right now. I haven't done much out of like sandboxes with them I and like, oh, cool. I understand why one would use this, um, that has pseudo class specifically. But I, I don't know. I feel like CSS is, is in a healthy, healthy place. I feel like, yeah, it's kind of catching up with a lot of the features that people wanted, uh, and they were leaning on JavaScript for before. Um, we'll see, I guess, if you know web devs care. Like, you know, it was it's a lot of CSS and JS is is easy to do in certain situations. CSS and JS are is like easier to implement sometimes when you can just like link it right to your logical code right there. But um, I think you know once you've kind of gone through it a couple times and can separate those concerns out, it, there are like performance wins and stuff. And yeah, again, you don't have to rely on like tooling in like a tool chain to make to figure that stuff out for you uh, and you can just do it natively so that's always always nice as well simplify that
0: the CSS working group actually for our listeners if you want to see about things coming up they publish their their notes and stuff like far in advance this was in the works for at least three years I think you can definitely tell that they're working on a lot of things so like I said it, I think it's probably a safe bet. in the future we will be using more of the actual features and Speaking about styling, I guess we have to talk about Tailwind otherwise we'll have lots of angry comments. I wonder if this means that Tailwind can stop being such a giant monstrosity on your bundle? Maybe? I don't know. Have you used Tailwind?
2: No. I mean, I no I haven't. I to answer your question, I may like maybe. I think that's kind of kind of what I was dancing around before as well, like I think I think it's you know, it's not free, right, to like switch to a lot of these new CSS paradigms like it's kind of a refactor. Like you got to rethink how your code is working. So, we'll see how much that comes to fruition, I think. Um, I, don't, I don't have I don't have super strong feelings on Tailwind, do you?
0: I have not used it. it seems like an awful awful idea. It, it, it was it's funny. It was like this style of styling was popular like 10 years ago too. It kind of died. And then came back.
1: Uh, I I do just want to throw in uh, the state of CSS came out literally yesterday um, and Tailwind is still the top library for CSS and then pure CSS is after that. But it's still at 80 percent. Just to throw that in there. Still popular. (laughs) All right. Browsers. So last year, Safari is the Internet Explorer of the modern age. Did it gain any respect this year (laughs) whatsoever?
2: Yeah, I feel like that was like a meme. Or like we were joking, like Safari's so I new in like I think it's becoming less of a meme and now it's just like a literalism. Like it, it, re- yeah, it just feels
0: that way. Um, I guess the big news in browsers this year was the Manifest V3 controversy that Chrome announced that's set to go in effect, I think in jan- January, sometime soon, which will be killing ad blockers, upset a lot of com- people in the community. I guess the one thing to look out for is whether or not developers start to switch in mass to Firefox. I wish I was one of them, but uh, the inertia is strong.
1: Is is just Chrome too big that Firefox probably can't attract more developers? Like it's just so integral into web development at this point.
2: Yeah, no, I don't think so at all. I don't I don't I don't think there's any major um like quantifiable factors that are causing this, I guess, particularly in the dev space. Um, the old argument was like, oh, so many of my users are using Chrome. I want to make sure that I'm like testing and running with that, which sure, I guess that's reasonable. But I don't know. I feel like it, at this point, you're not going to have something that's works on Firefox and doesn't work on Chrome for the most part. I, I'm sure there are cases, but I don't, it's not a case I've run into in a long, long time.
0: Uh, at LogRocket, the only develop the only browser differences that we've run into recently have always been Safari related, and we come a lot of those come up a lot because you know LogRocket we record and then we also play back so browser uh, for our sessions um, so, so our the browser differences can come up in two very different areas so we're very cognizant of how awful that is um, but like. For developers, you should be using Firefox. Like the the Firefox Developer Tools are pretty great now. I need to follow my own advice.
1: <laughs> what were there any Chrome Dev Tools that came out that you like this year or Firefox Dev Tools?
0: Uh, Nothing in performance. The I think the Lighthouse score was two years ago or something. Maybe, no, maybe no more, but almost saturation
2: point i guess yeah uh like i i mean I'm, i've been a firefox user for a long time um it's i don't at least last i checked uh, i haven't done it in the browser in a while but there there is still no like firefox dev tools native lighthouse checker they got installed something for it which is kind of kind of a pain in the ass but yeah yeah no i mean i there's like minor improvements that have been made to like the Firefox DevTools kind of UX more than anything. Nothing major has come out that I've been like, this changes my day-to-day drastically, but it's like adequate. I feel like very seldom anymore am I like, I sure wish I had this in my DevTools. Um, like they're there, they're fine.
0: Yeah. A while back, the only thing that keeping me on Chrome was the fact that Firefox did not support shared array buffers and I had side projects that were using those heavily and Firefox like had lots of embarrassing open issues about them and like very bad performance problems for a very long time with canvas so if you're do- doing what i was doing in development in a browser firefox was an awful
2: awful solution but things probably changed there i have a side project that's it. like all canvas and it it's totally totally works in firefox it was a little bit more performant in chrome but it was like once i was doing canvas things like i was buggy terrible code and like once i was doing canvas correctly like it works very well in both <laughs> so, yeah, this way yeah
1: awesome well uh i think we've covered quite a bit of ground for this past year i kind of want to get into our listener questions um some of them had problems this year that we can probably address and predictions for the next year so we touched on this a few times now, um, but one of the, we had two listeners submit questions about legacy technology and their problems have been arising when the business, their business doesn't want to forgo their legacy systems. So we have two questions. The first, if a business isn't willing to move to newer technologies, how can engineering managers try to integrate these newer technologies into an older stack without a full re- rewrite?
2: It's very situational. Depends on the situation tough.
0: That's hard. I'm, if the question is, like, how do you... I guess my answer is, sometimes you need a over here. Like, sometimes you need to rip out your entire build system and replace it. Sometimes not doing that actually will make it, you know, four times more work. I've had that argument so many times, and oftentimes it comes from people who are not familiar, and they just think that, oh, surely doing, you know, the half step will save us time. Things are not that simple. To me, the question is, how do you justify it? I think what has always worked for me is like build times, build times and performance. You can either find one or the other. Like, if you can tell your CTO, hey, we can have our developers stop waiting on the builds and then ship faster. If you can tell, like, another thing I think a listener brought up is about Storybook. Um, that's a relatively new addition to the tooling set where you have a separate build for just your components. And then uh, oftentimes your designers want to. See the changes for that, and so you can get complicated builds systems for that. But that creates a lot of value that you can immediately put a dollar sign on. Uh, your de- de- uh, designers make less tickets for about nits and stuff. That has a, a verifiable impact on your business. So use money as your excuse. I, I guess. I guess things get more nebulous on like websites. Like, where you work on null performance? Is the other side of this? I guess.
2: Yeah, I guess yeah, I, I can talk about performance too, but I think on, on your prior of like, you know, tying it to money, I think you can kind of you can kind of help put together a story if when you have like major bugs or like things that are user-facing, like outages and stuff, and it's easy to tie them to a legacy technology, like quantifying that, capturing that, like making lists of those things and be like, This is how much this is costing us. Like if we weren't in this legacy on these legacy systems we wouldn't be having these problems so i was like we would have we'd probably have other problems too that it would be like smaller like i can't you know see into the future but like these some of these problems are unique to this old you know system architecture whatever it is uh, and if you can kind of add those attributes to your um you know to your asks as well i think that that generally helps yeah and i think i think it's actually getting a little bit better i feel like there has been kind of maybe a I'm getting into trends trends and predictions, but I feel like this year there's been a big shift like towards performance again, kind of as we get to like pre-compilation, like server-side rendering, doing stuff on the edge. Like people are caring more about that performance and stuff. So I think think you'll start to see even more of a delta between websites, systems in general, that are like not using that or unable to use that due to old technology versus stuff that, can or can partially use it even like so we did a website cut over the old the old one was like a a, you know a more traditional setup the new one is all uh pre-compiled on on gatsby and it's faster you just hit you hit you hit some of the pages on the new site it's like yeah that's it's it's a couple milliseconds or you know a measurable like probably maybe 100 200 milliseconds but it's faster like you feel it you click it it loads quicker so again it's hard to quantify that but i think i think we're getting there like lighthouse scores, ranking, you know, impacting Google search rankings and stuff like that will also matter. I think as that pushes into mobile more and more, like that's going to start mattering. Yeah. So those num- those are easy numbers to pull a lot of the time as well that can help you make that argument, help one make that argument.
0: Yeah. On the app side, arguing for performance is often a lot harder because, you know, when your app runs a very complicated query that already takes five seconds to load, who cares if your site takes a complete second to load? When your users ex- don't expect performance, oftentimes it's only the developer arguing for it. <laughs> Feels like sometimes, but I guess, uh, the follow up question was not just about tooling, but like, what if your company has a ton of, you know, old jQuery code? And I will start by saying, I'm so sorry <laughs> that you're in that situation. Uh, I guess you could still tie that into money too. And even like recruiting too. Recruiting too. Like I would not I would not work for a company that was using jQuery as a alone, alone, nothing else. Like it's just unacceptable. Like you're you're running a business like this. I don't know. 15 years obsolete.
2: Yeah, chasing your time. I mean it's hard, you know, like not everyone's in a position to move and change roles and stuff. So it is it is like tough. But I think like if you're in if you are find yourself in that position and you are in them like you're finding it hard to recruit people and stuff, like again, like start quantifying it. Be like, we're losing we're losing potential hires because of our technology, like our current stack. Um, and I feel like that can help help you make your case too.
0: Great question. That's uh, that. This space occupies a lot of my time at LogRocket because I'm kind of like the liaison between design and engineering, almost. So, like I mentioned earlier, Storybook came out a couple of years ago. It had a great year. Uh, a big release, or two, maybe. It feels like they've had like ten releases. They're very framework agnostic. Uh, there are competitors, but I, I don't see why you would use any of them, considering how feature-packed Storybook is now, and it's almost like a parallel set of tools now for this just this space. To make a good design system now, I think it's important to be very integrated with you know whatever tooling your whatever tools your designers use. Like Figma is big until. Well, until Adobe bottom this year. Who, who knows what will happen next year? Uh, sorry for all your Adobe employees listening. Uh, w- one big thing that I found, like, you want your developers and your designers to be on the same page. And so linking those together, that happens in Storybook. Uh, another big thing, like, visual regression testing. It's super easy to do with Storybook because you're already running the tests, and they fulfill you know three different functions. They can be unit tests, they can be documentation, for developers and designers, and also your visual regression testing. That's just awesome. And it's something that we at LogRocket have started to explore. Well, I guess, similar to design systems component libraries, I've noticed also this last year, like, style agnostic component libraries, at least five of them. I I really like that. Um, Because no one likes to override 100 different styles. And it, it means that you can pull in a style agnostic component library, and then just apply your design system that already exists, which is just great saves a ton of engineering time.
1: Yeah, totally. I want to move on one more listener question, design systems. Um, They were asking, who are the current design system industry leaders and what technologies do they use to maintain and deliver design systems as living documents? Um, And I also just want to uh, ask, how do you see the design system space changing in 2023?
2: Yeah, as far as a lot of big players in the space, I don't know. It's kind of Google it, check it out. I feel like we had like material was king for so long. And like we have Polaris, right? That's uh, uh, Shopify's.
0: Um, I've always personally hated material UI. Whenever I use it, I have to override at least a thousand things.
2: I like material for like little side products where I don't want to have to think about things. Like I feel like the defaults are fine a lot of the time. Like, you know, kind of, look snappy, good enough for a. Proof of concept can grab a component library and it works, but I get I get the kind of knee jerk like you uh, material that a lot of people have had for a long time, and I'm I'm glad there's like kind of other systems that are getting up to parity with Material in terms of like implementation ease. So
0: another thing I I would like to call out uh, like here at LogRocket we use uh, Style System and Theme UI and stuff which are like a good foundation for building your own design system. I think like in the last like five years, that's kind of matured a lot too. We've fully went towards like component-based design, not just on the developer side, but now also on the designer side.
1: Great. I think I want to move on to one or two listener questions. One of the ones I want to talk about was chat gpt which everyone as time of recording has been obsessing over this week but it kind of ties into ai tools in general we had one listener say i predict like next year we're going to be using more ai tools in development and everything but this one listener that had a question said that he they feel like this is a black swan event and that we just created fire. And we've seen a lot of AI tools over like the past year or so. Um, that is kind of mind blowing, but they kind of fizzle away. But their question is, what do you guys think the impact of AI will be on the industry? How will it affect our jobs? And what new ways of doing things do you think we should be preparing for? And if you have any thoughts on AI tools in general.
0: Uh, anyone saying that this is gonna replace your job is Stop reading the news, I think. (laughs) Like, this will replace, like, everyone's been complaining recently about how awful Google has gotten. This is going to be the next, this is going to replace search engines. This is going to replace, you know, a million little tools, but like, it's not going to replace your job. Like, have you seen the code output? Like, it even gets arithmetic wrong sometimes. Sure, that might improve in the future, but. I don't know writing code was never your job really it's thinking about the architecture thinking about the right way to do things that
2: that's your job yeah the way that the interaction with the world still is where where devs come into it so I think I agree but I think there are like I think it will impact us day to day like at the end of the day not in not in like a uh, not in a way that's like special to developers i don't think i think it'll i think it'll change developers day-to-day lives in the same way that it changes like any kind of you know office workers typical day-to-day workload um just in like our tooling is going to get better right like chat email all that stuff will like be easier um, we'll have like even like search engines like caitlin said like it'll just be easier to answer questions quick i think it'll be easy to easier to like ideate quickly right like i want to like um, but what we are kicking around as an example, yesterday, we were kicking around like the idea of performance reviews and stuff, like how cool to, like, you know, you like you, you put in the bullet points for uh, your coworker, manager, boss, whatever. And like, it makes a nice sounding performance review thing out of it. Like, sure. Like, I think we'll see a lot of those, a lot of those tools come to fruition more quickly. And like, beyond that, like the long-term impact, the uh, impact of AI on society is like out of the scope of <laughs> what I can talk about here. So I don't know. Like I played
0: around with GitHub Copilot, and like I wasn't like super impressed. It could generate small snippets of code, but as soon as I gave it any bigger task, like it just fell apart.
1: Yeah, it's it's more just hopefully making productivity better for devs.
0: I think so. Maybe small scale. Oh,
1: another question uh, was actually from a. Uh, data science scientist and back-end engineer. And this kind of played into another um, prediction of devs becoming more full stack rather than front-end and back-end. But this person specifically, <laughs> which Caitlin does not like, uh, but this person specifically um, said that something they still don't feel fully comfortable with is front-end testing. Um, so what are some of the mental frameworks you'd recommend using for testing? Um, Are there any best practices? How can a back-end engineer uh, be better at front-end testing?
0: My evolution on testing, I hate writing Cypress tests. My least favorite thing to do is writing end-to-end tests. So I tend to, to favor unit testing and regression testing, visual regression testing, storybook stuff like that for the
2: front end yeah nothing to add i feel like kind of tests more specific beyond that just becomes so they're so they're so fragile that they're almost useless It's just like got, if you got to tweak it every time you're not really testing anything
1: great short and sweet but i i do want to go back to the visceral reaction caitlin just had on video about everyone becoming full stack is this is this something that's going to happen
0: i, I don't know where they got that i mean the field of computer science the field of engineering, in general, has been a continuous evolution into smaller and smaller, smaller specialties. You know, we're not called computer engineers anymore. We're software engineers. We make software. Then we're not called, and that split, and then that split, and then that split, and then like, I mean, fifteen years ago they were calling us webmasters, and then then we have ops people, and then we have database people, and then we have full stack people, and then now we have front end engineers and back end engineers. Isn't that a more natural evolution? I don't know. And then there's a whole meme about, you know, people call themselves full stack and they know, like, almost no front end. Always amuses me as a front end engineer.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so as well. I think it's one of those things, like, it's it's good when you can slot into a more specialized role, especially, like, if you're new into the industry. Like, I think that's it's so hard if you know, there's incre- increased number of job postings for full stack or something, and you're trying to get in for the first time. And so it's nice when one, when one can specialize. So that's a positive. Uh, but yeah, I'm kind of with Kellen. I, I don't, I haven't, I haven't really seen a trend either way. I haven't been paying super close attention though. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, I have to wonder how much of that is coming from people who are trying to hire engineers and they would prefer to just put one type of job posting instead of two
1: totally valid um one one other before we get into your predictions uh one other prediction um was uh someone said that they see things continuing to move server side only especially with Next.js becoming more popular what are your thoughts on that
0: um single page apps were a mistake
1: there that's on point
2: (laughs) uh yeah that's kind of good like that i think that's probably going to be like my main prediction of this year. Yeah. It feels, it feels like kind of, kind of like I alluded to before performance that like time to first load what's delivered. Like I think, I feel like we're kind of in this, this, uh, like renaissance of that right now. The frameworks care about it. The infrastructure cares about it. The like search engines care about it and users obviously care about it, whether they like consciously realize it or not. So I mean, yeah, I think it's happening even as a
0: front-end developer, on am fully on board. I guess this makes this whole specialization argument I just made it kind of more difficult because now, you know, the lines. What is the front-end, Galen? Yeah, I guess the terms are blurring. As a front-end as a front end engineer, I make front-ends. It doesn't matter where they're on,
2: I guess is what I'm going to say.
1: So let's get into your predictions. I'm very excited to hear who wants to go first.
2: I think that I was kind of just explaining it. I think I think we'll see more of this performance at, that runtime uh, seems to be a thing that people care about. Like, I think we've kind of hit hit maturity maybe on a lot of these, like, edge computing tools like Cloudflare's key value store and stuff like that in a way that I think we might start seeing more of that stuff hit, like, production workloads this year, I'm kind of hoping. But it's all kind of part of that larger narrative of just, like, fast page loads. You load a web page for the first time on mobile when you have slow connection. It's not like, you know, I can't get... You know checked into my hotel or whatever because i only have one bar like things just work with a fraction of the data that they needed before at least i hope i hope we keep going that down that route um down that route because i feel we kind of have been so that's the big one that i'm excited for and yeah again like i think turbo pack the just kind of the the build tooling continuing to go forward get faster um are my are my big ones
0: yeah agreed. i would also add to that just a continuous focus on standards. Like we see that in the node community, like getting rid of their awful module system. I think that will be, more developers will be waking up to that fact, I think, that, hey, we don't have to transpile this anymore. And I think a large part of that was the death of IE and a large part of the corporate world finally, you know, begrudgingly entering this uh decade (laughs) and after that like there is no no reason to do a lot of things anymore like no reason to have no really good reason to do a lot of things like CSS related, like I said earlier, CSS CSS and JS. Or and if there is, then maybe ultimately those should be just compiling down to these modern day technologies instead of, you know, the CSS that, you know, your grandmother made. Essentially. That's about it, I think, for me.
1: All right. Those were some great predictions. I'm very excited to see what 2023 looks like for this space. Um, thank you again, Nolan, and Kalen, for joining us or joining me, I guess.
2: <laughs> no, of course. Of course. Yeah. It's always fun. Fun chatting. See you next year.
1: <laughs> I know. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you like the podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us see what content you really like uh help us make more content like this and follow us on twitter at PodRocketPod. pod we love to hear from you tell us what you want to hear give us comments whatever you want but uh, happy new year everyone and we will see you this is our last episode of the year i believe so we will see you in 2023 thanks for listening